Chapter Three of In Kent with Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. In Kent with Charles Dickens by Thomas Frost. Chapter Three. We thought of David Copperfield coming over the bridge at Rochester, footsore and tired, on that journey to Dover, which was destined to have so strong an influence upon his future life as we trudged over the handsome iron bridge which had succeeded the old stone structure of former days. And as we paused upon it midway to look up the river, we thought of Mr. Pickwick too, and I conjured up before my mental vision the figure of that estimable gentleman, his beaming countenance, his spectacles, and his amplitude of vest, leaning over the balustrade of the bridge, contemplating nature, and waiting for his breakfast. On the left of the spectator lay the ruined wall, broken in many places, and in some overhanging the narrow beach in rude and heavy masses. Huge knots of seaweed hung upon jagged and pointed stones, trembling in every breath of wind, and the green ivy clung mournfully around the dark and ruined battlements. Behind it rose the ancient castle, its towers roofless, and its massive walls crumbling away, but telling as proudly of its own might and strength as when, seven hundred years ago, it rang with the clash of arms, or resounded with the noise of feasting and revelry. On either side the banks of the Medway, covered with cornfields and pastures, with here and there a windmill or a distant church, stretched away as far as the eye could see, presenting a rich and varied landscape, rendered more beautiful by the changing shadows which passed swiftly across it, as thin and half-formed clouds skimmed away in the light of the morning sun. The river, reflecting the clear blue of the sky, glistened and sparkled as it flowed noiselessly on, and the oars of the fishermen dipped into the water with a clear and liquid sound, as the heavy but picturesque boats glided slowly down the stream. Just as Mr. Pickwick saw it then, we saw it now, and the reflection occurred spontaneously that Dickens must often have leaned over the bridge as we were doing, and gazed upon the castle ruins and the sunlit stream which they were then overshadowing. Mr. Forster relates that he met him here on his return from Broadstairs at the end of September 1841, and that they passed the day and night here, and we find them here again with the novelist's wife and Miss Hogarth, and Maclise and Gerald, four years later, when they visited the castle and Watts's almshouse, and went over the fortifications of Chatham, having their quarters at the Bull Inn. At a later period of his life, during his residence at Gad's Hill, Dickens often walked into Rochester, turning out of the high street through the Vines, one of the old houses in which locality, called Restoration House, served him as a model for his picture of the gloom and desolation of Satis House in Great Expectations. Thence to Chatham Lines, round to Fort Pitt, and across the bridge again. Our great novelist knew this city intimately, therefore, and the fruits of his knowledge of it are found not only in the story just named, 
and in the work by which he first made his mark on the records of English literature, but riper and more abundant in the last production of his genius, which was unfinished when he was suddenly snatched from life, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, in which, though the many graphic sketches of local scenery are readily recognisable by any person who knows Rochester, its identity is thinly veiled under the name of Cloisterham. An ancient city, Cloisterham, and no meet dwelling-place for anyone with hankerings after the noisy world. A monotonous, silent city, deriving an earthy flavour throughout from its cathedral crypt. A drowsy city, Cloisterham, whose inhabitants seem to suppose, with an inconsistency more strange than rare, that all its changes lie behind it, and that there are no more to come. A queer moral to derive from antiquity, yet older than any traceable antiquity. So silent are the streets of Cloisterham, though prone to echo on the smallest provocation, that of a summer day the sun-blinds of the shops scarce dare to flap in the south wind, while the sun-browned tramps who pass along and stare quicken their limp a little, that they may the sooner get beyond the confines of its oppressive respectability. This is a feat not difficult of achievement, seeing that the streets of Cloisterham City are little more than one narrow street by which you get into and get out of it, the rest being mostly disappointing yards with pumps in them, and no thoroughfare, exception made of the cathedral close, and a paved Quaker settlement, in colour and general confirmation very like a Quaker bonnet, up in a shady corner. In a word, a city of another and a bygone time is Cloisterham, with its hoarse cathedral bell, its hoarse rooks hovering about the cathedral tower, its hoarser and less distinct rooks in the stalls far beneath. Fragments of old wall, saint's chapel, chapter-house, convent and monastery, have got incongruously or obstructively built into many of its houses and gardens, much as kindred jumbled notions have become incorporated into many of its citizens' minds. All things in it are of the past. Turning to the right, we ascended the steep path leading to the ruins of the old castle, looking up at its massive walls and towers, and recalling to our minds the events of which it had been the scene how it was three times taken and retaken in the troublous times of the tyrant John, and how it was unsuccessfully besieged by Simon de Montfort in the days when the barons were the champions of freedom as yet undreamed of by the trader and the artisan, and by that famous Kentish man the Dartford Tyler in that later time when crude ideas of liberty were beginning to ferment in the minds of the serfs. From the castle we soon turned, however, to the venerable edifice on our right, which still connects the past with the present, and which Dickens has so intimately associated with the mystery which he wove around the fate of Edwin Drood, and which the non-completion of the story left unsolved. Standing under the Norman archway of the cathedral, the curate contemplating its characteristic zigzag mouldings, the dim light within reminded me of the simile of Mr. Grugius, 
that it was like looking down the throat of old time. It was earlier in the day and earlier in the year than when Grugius went to meet Jasper, the chief chorister, whom we cannot help suspecting of being the murderer of Edwin Drood. But there was no difficulty in realising the scene before us, as it was beheld by him on that occasion, when old time heaved a mouldy sigh from tomb and arch and vault, and gloomy shadows began to deepen in the corners, and damps began to rise from green patches of stone, and jewels cast upon the pavement of the nave from the stained glass by the declining sun began to perish. Within the grill-gate of the chancel, up the steps surmounted loomingly by the fast darkening organ, white robes could be dimly seen, and a feeble voice, rising and falling in a cracked, monotonous mutter, could at intervals be faintly heard. In the free outer air, the river, the green pastures and the brown arable lands, the teeming hills and dales, were reddened by the sunset while the distant little windows in windmills and farm homesteads shone, patches of bright molten gold. We entered the cathedral, and looked around upon the massive columns, the rounded arches, the stained-glass windows, the oaken stalls, the sculptured tombs of bishops and abbots, the memorial brasses of barons and knights of the olden time but the objects which chiefly attracted my attention were the quaint monument of the founder of Watts's charity, which forms a prominent feature of the wall of the southwestern transept, and the brass tablet beneath it, which bears the following inscription. Charles Dickens, born at Portsmouth the 7th of February, 1812, died at Gads Hill Place the 9th of June, 1870, buried in Westminster Abbey, to connect his memory with the scenes in which his earliest and latest years were passed, and with the associations of Rochester Cathedral and its neighbourhood, which extended over all his life, this tablet, with the sanction of the dean and chapter, is placed by his executors. As we stood in the nave, looking up at the low-arched galleries and the sculptured corbels of the roof, I thought of that unaccountable expedition, as Dickens himself calls it, of Jasper, the opium-smoking chorister, and Durdles, the sottish mason, which seems to have some unexplained connection with the unsolved mystery of Edwin Drood's disappearance. Drood and Neville arrive separately at the chorister's house in the cathedral close, but of the time and manner of their leaving it we are told nothing, except by the mouth of Jasper, who declares that his nephew and Neville rival aspirants to the affections of Rosa Bud, left his house together, and that of Neville, who deposes that they afterwards walked along the river above the bridge, and then parted. Drood is not seen again, but Neville finds his watch and chain on the weir. It is on this night that Jasper and Durdles, in fulfilment of a previously expressed desire of the former, ascend the winding stairs which lead to the summit of the great tower of the cathedral. As they toil up the stairs, turning and turning, and lowering their heads to avoid the stairs above, 
or the rough stone pivot around which they twist, Durdles makes such frequent applications to Jasper's brandy-flask, from which the chorister is evidently disposed to allow him to imbibe as much as he pleases, that by the time they have got down again he is helplessly intoxicated. He lies down, sleeps heavily for a couple of hours, and awakes at daybreak to find himself shivering with cold, and Jasper pacing the stone pavement by his side. In the manner of the chorister's occupation during these two hours seems to be the solution of the mystery. The great tower, which rises on the north side of the choir, is named after Bishop Gundolf, who in the eleventh century built or rebuilt the nave. The ascent and the view from the summit, as seen by Jasper by moonlight, are thus described by Dickens. Their way lies through strange places. Twice or thrice they emerge into level, low-arched galleries, whence they look down into the moonlit nave, and where Durdles, waving his lantern, shows the dim angels' heads upon the corbels of the roof, seeming to watch their progress. Anon they turn into narrower and steeper staircases, and the night air begins to blow upon them, and the chirp of a startled jackdaw or frightened rook precedes the heavy beating of wings in a confined space, and the beating down of dust and straws upon their heads. At last, leaving their light behind a stair, for it blows fresh up here, they look down on Cloisterham, fair to see in the moonlight its ruined habitations and sanctuaries of the dead at the tower's base, its moss-softened red-tiled roofs and red-brick houses of the living clustered beyond, its river winding down from the mist on the horizon as though that were its source, and already heaving with the restless knowledge of its approach towards the sea. "'Is there not some legend connected with this tower?' I inquired of a verger. The man looked at me steadfastly for a moment, then down at the pavement and up at the roof, before he replied, as if he were questioning his memory as to whether he had ever heard of any such legend. "'Well, yes, sir,' he at length replied. "'There is some mention in histories, I believe, of something that was supposed to be seen in the tower in the old times.' "'A ghost?' said the curate. "'Not exactly,' replied the verger, "'unless there could be such a thing as the ghost of a hand. For I think the story this gentleman alludes to was about a hand that was supposed to guard a hidden treasure.' "'An illuminated hand, was it not?' said I. "'Something of that sort, sir,' replied the verger. "'I don't suppose there ever was such a thing, or the treasure either.' But the story was, now I think of it, that the hand used to be seen in the tower on St. Mark's Eve, and that many attempts were made to discover the treasure, which it was supposed the hand would point out to any person who could succeed in extinguishing the light. "'Was it ever discovered?' inquired one of my companions. "'No, sir,' replied the verger, smiling languidly as he shook his head. "'Nobody could ever blow out the light.' Passing from the cathedral into the shady and sequestered close, where Rosabud walked with Edwin Drood, we were reminded of Dickensian pictures at every step, from every point of view. 
The sun was high in the unclouded sky, and there were no puddles on the uneven pavement, but the Virginia creeper was turning red upon the cathedral wall, and a few yellow leaves had fallen from the old elms. It was easy, therefore, to imagine the picture as described by Dickens at a later period of the year. The low sun is fiery and yet cold behind the monastery ruin, and the Virginia creeper on the cathedral wall has showered half its deep red leaves down on the pavement. There has been rain this afternoon, and a wintry shudder goes among the little pools on the cracked, uneven flagstones, and through the giant elms as they shed a gust of tears. Their fallen leaves lie strewn thickly about. There was Minor Cannon Corner, Minor Cannon Row is, I believe, the right name of the place, where the Reverend Septimus Crisparkle lived. A quiet place in the shadow of the cathedral, which the cawing of the rooks, the echoing footsteps of rare passers, the sound of the cathedral bell, or the roll of the cathedral organ, seemed to render more quiet than absolute silence. There, too, was the old ivy-covered stone gatehouse crossing the close, with an archway beneath it for the passage of the few persons who go that way, which the novelist made the abode of John Jasper, the opium-smoker of Bluegate Fields, the sweet-voiced chorister of Cloisterham Cathedral, the uncle of Edwin Drood, and the passionate admirer of Rosa Budd. Dickens describes it as seen on an autumn evening, when, through its latticed window a fire shines out upon the fast-darkening scene, involving in shadow the pendant masses of ivy and creeper covering the building's front. As the deep cathedral bell strikes the hour, a ripple of wind goes through these at their distance, like a ripple of the solemn sound that hums through tomb and tower broken niche and defaced statue in the pile close at hand. We failed to discover, or perhaps to identify, the nun's house, where John Jasper taught music, and Rosa Budd was a charming and particularly petted pupil, and which Dickens describes as a venerable brick edifice, whose present appellation is doubtless derived from the legend of its conventual uses, standing in the midst of Cloisterham. Passing the Bull Inn, the quarters of the Pickwickians, when they came down from London by the Rochester coach half a century ago to ruralise in pleasant Kent, as well as of Dickens, Gerald, Forster, Maclise, and others, when they came to see the old castle and the older cathedral some years later, we went on to the celebrated almshouse, of which the novelist has given such a graphic description in one of the Christmas numbers of his periodical, and which was founded in the fifteenth century by Richard Watts, whose quaint monument we had seen in the southwestern transept of the cathedral. For six poor travellers, who, not being rogues or proctors, may receive gratis for one night, lodging and entertainment and fourpence each. Footnote like those of many old charities, the revenues of the poor traveller's house have far outgrown the requirements of the founder's purpose, amounting at the present time to between three and four thousand pounds per annum. This increase induced the trustees, about a quarter of a century ago, to submit to the Court of Chancery 
a scheme for the erection and endowment of an almshouse for ten men and ten women, and for empowering the trustees to contribute four thousand pounds towards the erection of a general hospital for the benefit of the city and neighbourhood, and an annual donation of one thousand pounds towards its support. The scheme received the sanction of the court, and was carried out by the erection of a handsome block of almshouses, in the Tudor style of architecture, on the Maidstone Road, at a cost of nearly ten thousand pounds, with two magnificent gateways, which cost seven hundred pounds more. The hospital portion of the scheme was part of a plan for the reconstitution of St. Bartholomew's Hospital, originally founded by Bishop Gundolf in 1078, for the benefit of lepers returning from the Crusades, but which had been many years in abeyance. A handsome general hospital was erected on the new road, and opened in 1863, and is maintained partly from the revenues of Bishop Gundolf's endowment, and partly from the annual donation from the funds of Watts's charity, aided by voluntary subscriptions. End of footnote. The question of our eligibility for the benefits of the charity was jocularly raised by the curate, and an application to the master might perhaps have been defensible on the plea urged by Breslaw the conjurer, who, having announced while performing at Canterbury that he would give the proceeds of the last night's performance to the poor, divided the money among his musicians and assistants, who, as he told the mayor, were as poor as any one in the city. The curate's proposition was not entertained, however, and we turned back into the high street to dine, and take a parting look at the ancient city, which we then saw glowing in the sunlight, as Dickens has described it in those last pages of The Mystery of Edwin Drood, which he wrote in the Swiss chalet at Gad's Hill Place the day before he died. A brilliant sun shines on the old city, its antiquities and ruins are surpassingly beautiful, with the lusty ivy gleaming in the sun, and the rich trees waving in the balmy air. Changes of glorious light from moving boughs, songs of birds, scents from gardens, woods, and fields, or rather from the one great garden of the whole cultivated island in its yielding time, penetrate into the cathedral, subdue its earthy odour, and preach the resurrection and the life. The cold stone tombs of centuries ago grow warm, and flecks of brightness dart into the sternest marble corners of the building, fluttering there like wings. Those were the last lines the hand and pen of the great novelist ever traced, and the deep interest which the knowledge imparted to the description when I first perused it was revived as we took our last look at Rochester before trudging into Chatham. End of chapter 3